Here's how this article starts. A woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in North Korea in a North Korean prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious. The beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped from Boko Haram, who kidnapped her. She's pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These people don't live in the same region or even on the same continent, but they share an important characteristic. They're all Christians, and they suffer because of their faith. And while Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ from Sudan to Russia from Nigeria to North Korea, from Colombia to India, followers of Christianity are targeted for their faith. They are attacked, they are discriminated against at work and at school, they risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and much more. In just the last year, and there's just a few stats really quickly, just the last year, while we're worried about COVID and masks and businesses, Over 260 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. 2,983 Christians were killed for their faith. 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. And 3,711 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. The top five world watch list countries, hotbeds of persecution, not the only places, the the top five according to Open Doors, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan. So again, overly privatizing our reading of the Psalms will cause us to, why Lord, why these small things? And we're neglecting these big things that Christians are experiencing throughout Christian history and throughout the world. And we're naive if we think, it's, we're impervious to it here. It's not going to come here. It won't come here. It's already here. It's already here. Maybe in seminal form compared to some of these other countries. But we need to be made aware of those situations so we can have a better perspective on the uh, hardships that we're seeing in this country. The political unrest and the factiousness and all of that is not unrelated to nations raging against Christ. And it's in that context that I think we need to read this psalm. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 74. Psalm 74, which is the second book, uh, second psalm in book three. Uh, the, the psalms are divided into five books, somewhat thematic. And Psalm 74 begins with the, this question. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And that, song, that question is, we, we can't understand the weight of that question unless we think of what's going on globally to churches and unless we can view 
the things that break our hearts on the news, your heart shouldn't break for your political party. It's the nations raging against the sun, Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 push through all the rest of the Psalms, and this is really channeling that second one, asking why. Why don't you come and do something? Why don't you intervene? Why are you letting us get bullied, arrested, tortured, all of that? And so I want to read this sort of in three chunks. We'll take verses 1 through 11 first. Let me just put all those 11 verses in front of us so we'll pause, notice a couple of things, and then move forward. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment, and destroy them? It's these raw emotions that you see where the psalmist is asking God to step in and do something about very actual things. Uh, scholars debate about when exactly this took place. But the temple has been invaded, burned. All the wood ornaments and furniture in the temple have been hacked to pieces. He sees their, their axes swinging high, verse 5. It's like seeing people just uh, lumberjacks in a forest just taking the trees down, this utter destruction in this meeting place, this place where songs were sung and bread was broken together and God was worshipped and Scripture was expounded upon and it's been destroyed, hacked to bits. It's left in verse 3 in the perpetual ruins. Now you might think, well, Clearly, the community is sorry about this, and they're repentant, so they should just ask God, you know, repent. Maybe they did something. He's ang God is angry at them. Verse 1, you cast us off. Your anger is smoked against us. Okay, maybe Israel deserved it. But maybe they did repent. They did come to the Lord, and everything is still just getting worse. That's why he says, forever? Like, I get it for a month, a couple of months. But we repented. How many times do we need to repent? How long do we need to lament? How long do we need to come back to you? You're not giving us any profits. You're not telling us anything further than what we already have. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. A week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, a decade goes by. I don't know the exact historical situation. 
But you see in verse 3, he wants God to direct his steps to the perpetual ruins. This thing keeps happening, and you're not doing anything about it. Where are you? It's legitimate when we see pressure against Christ's church, which, of course, what is God's temple today? I know many Christians are aimed at a physical temple in a physical place. Right? But I think the New Testament makes it clear the ultimate temple, this very profound truth that we are Christ's temple. And so when Christians are attacked, like those stats I just read you a few minutes ago, that is Christ's temple being raided and hacked. And then, of course, this focuses also on the meeting places. And, of course, churches are bombed, raided. People have to think, Christians have to think about different ways to make a meeting place because of this hatred against Christ. They're not allowed to meet, so they have to meet in secret. And so those meeting places become homes or warehouses or storefronts. And I don't preach this to scare any of you. I just want us to be prepared because this is normal. The Psalms are full of this stuff. So our options are to privatize it and make it about my mean boss. And really, it has very little to do with that. I mean, unless your boss is persecuting you specifically because you're Christian. Another option is just kind of bypass these until we get to a psalm that hits home a little more to our privatized tendencies. Or we can, instead of looking at our own situations myopically, we can open up and see how our story fits into this bigger story. What's going on on the grand scale? Don't let our news channel tell you what's going on on a grand scale. Let Scripture do that for you. And as we do that, we see that there's an enemy working. There's an enemy up to no good, and he's making his chess moves, not for political parties, but to put pressure on the church. It's an invisible enemy that's always been at work. And so as we look at these, this, this horror the real pain of the passage is not that these things are happening. The real pain of the passage is God is letting it happen and seems to not be stepping in. God is slow afoot in verse 3 because his steps aren't being directed toward the ruins and his hands are stuck in his pockets. In verse 11, God, it seems like you're not doing anything. One of the laments is that there's no prophet. We think to ourselves, man, wouldn't it be cool to live back in the Bible days where you could just go to a prophet? Which Bible days? There weren't always prophets. All they had was scripture, just like us. You know, no one comes calling me like, I, I need, what did you dream last night, Pastor? I need, you know. They had to rely on scripture. There was no prophet there at the time at least in front of them, ministering to them. So they feel like we don't have a fresh word. We don't have anything new from you. What we do have from you is really old. And we're just seeing all this destruction. We're seeing these attacks. God, please step in. I think that is where this passage really trains us on how to view the difficulties, especially when they come our way, and increasingly come our way in this country. 
We don't have a prophet to go to. And if somebody stands up and tells you they have a prophecy for you, I'd, I'd be really cautious of that. It is not normal to have prophets around. And like them, what we have is Scripture to look back on, the testimonies that have been written down for us about what God has done in the past. And he leans on those things. Now, someone might say, what you need to do is look back on your life and see how God has put things together. And we may have heard that. Maybe I've even said that. Now, why don't you look back on your own life, again, privatizing this thing, look back on your own life and see how God has worked things out. The problem there is a couple things. One, there might be things in your life that still haven't been worked out. There's still big gaping wounds that haven't been closed. There's still some outstanding thing that hasn't been fixed, that hasn't come full circle. How are you supposed to interpret that? Another difficulty with that, actually, I was reading this week, a book that was given to me, I'm not recommending it to you. This won't make it into the book giveaways. Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart by Gordon Livingston. Not writing this as a Christian. He's a psychiatrist and a therapist. Listen to what he says about the problem with going down memory lane and remembering your life. He says, memory is not, as many of us think, an accurate transcription of past experience. Now, you think you remember things accurately, but you really don't. Why? He says, because memory is not a transcription of past experience. Your memory, rather, is a story you tell yourself about the past, full of distortions, wishful thinking, and unfulfilled dreams. So here you have a secular person picking up on something that I think is thoroughly biblical, we don't remember things accurately. We have versions of what has happened to us. That's why he brings up in this chapter, you can have two siblings from the same home and one of them remembers it horribly and the other one remembers beautiful things. We take things from the past and we shade it through our experiences, making our memories unreliable to move us forward into the future is his point. You can't just look back on your personal past and go, oh, okay, that's how I need to view my personal future. Because we don't have a reliable outlook on our own personal past. Now here's what's tragic. When he ends the chapter, here's how he ends it. Again, he's not a Christian, so he picked up on a truth. What do you do with that truth? Well, here's what he does with it. How he closes this chapter. So, how best to recover hope? when the western horizon of our lives looms increasingly close. In other words, you can't depend on your past to help you with your future, but your future is coming to an end, you're all going to die, you're getting old. What hope do you have if you can't rely on the past to help shape your future? He gives two options. And knowing, because I read the rest of the book, he prefers option two. A, we can cultivate religion with its promise of immortality, and reunion with those we have lost, or we can concede a poor agnosticism, meaning you don't, you don't know what to believe, There's, we can't know. We can concede a poor agnosticism and surrender ourselves to the unknown as we try to imagine some meaning in the ceaseless rhythms of existence, life and death, dream and despair, and the heartbreaking mystery of unanswered prayers. 
End of the chapter. Well, he doesn't quite come right out and say it. He's saying, yeah, you can cling to myths of like immortality. Like, oh, I'm going to see my loved ones again. Or you can just come to grips with reality. Life is up and down. There's death. There's despair. There's joys. There's, dis- you know, disappointments. But we need to recognize that prayers aren't answered. I say the reason why prayers aren't answered is because he doesn't have a solution to the problem he identified. His problem is correct, but he doesn't have a solution, which he admits. You can go to religion, eh, that doesn't really do anything, or you can just chalk it up to nothingness, right? Scripture tells us we don't have an accurate picture of what has happened in the past. That's why God inscripturated it, so that we don't go down our personal hall of memories, but our communities hall of memory is the community of faith that has existed from the beginning. And that's what he does in this psalm. We don't have prophets. We don't have new scripture. I'm not going to bank on my personal memory. I'm going to bank on the memory of the community of faith. So he starts in verse 12. Check it out. Yet God, my king, is from of old. Right? I'm not going to go back to when I was young. I'm going to go back to fur- way further than that working salvation in the midst of the earth. So he's zooming way out, not just this situation here, but how God operates on a grand scale. He says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. When he is faced with things in front of him that shake his faith, that scare him, and that make him feel like God is not present, he doesn't ever say in the psalm, actually, I found out you, you are present. No, God is, in a sense, he is distance. And he has sort of, he's allowed this devastation to happen. And psalmist doesn't backtrack on that. He doesn't take it back, but he says, but God has always been in power. And he hasn't just been in power in sort of a random way, but in a precise, purposeful way. So he doesn't just say, yeah, you created things. Look at how he created created things, and look at what he has done in creation, in the midst of the earth. Now, many see that he's drawing on the creation narrative in Genesis by dividing the sea, right, the waters from the firmament, but he's using creation language, even the sun and the night and all of that, he's using creation language to echo what happened in Exodus. And you remember what God did in Exodus? You had a people that were under oppression for 400 years. They were slaves. They were praying similar prayers, crying out to God, or maybe just giving up on the fact that God even cares. And God brought them out of Egypt. And what did he do when they confronted the, the Red Sea? He split and he divided the sea, right? Verse 13. Uh, Egypt in the Bible is sometimes referred to as a sea monster, Rahab or Leviathan or something like that. And as they chased him through the sea, he broke them on the waters, didn't he? He crushed the heads of Leviathan. He crushed Egypt and left them for 
scraps for wilderness creatures. You remember when they were in the wilderness and they were thirsty and he brought water out of rock? You remember when they had to cross the Jordan, he dried up the river? Think about the fact that God uses his power to reverse things. You have a flowing river, we can't cross it, I'll dry it up. We have no water, we're going to die of thirst, I'll bring water out of a rock. He, he does surprising things. He waits until you're in this place of agony going, there is no other way, and then he performs. That's, how he, that's his MO. He wants you to feel the pressure. He didn't give Adam Eve until he saw all the animals have, <laughs> all the animals have partners. Yeah, I know. Here. He, he waits. And so he's, it's not just banking on the fact that God is powerful, but God is purposeful. He does things when he needs to do them, when he wants to do them. He does things in a right time. So he is powerful, and he is waiting. And there is a lot of things going on that can make us question where God is in all of it. Where we have to look is not to a modern-day prophet. What we have to look is to the stories of old, not through the scrapbooks of our own personal memories, which is not irrelevant, by the way. But what we need to do is see how your personal story fits in the big story. If we cannot accurately bank on our memories, how can we trust our own memories? Well, think about your upbringing. Think about your family's history in the context of the big story. The big story that the Bible provides is the guardrails for you to understand what's going on in your past, what's going on in this country, what's going on in this world. It's not that we should just forget memories, not watch the news, not look at what's going on. We should, but interpret those things underneath what we're getting in these verses, that God operates in certain ways. And of course, to push this further, I don't want to linger too long on this before we close out the psalm, but the Exodus is not just a historical moment. God used the Exodus. If you remember back when we preached through that book, uh, I enjoyed it so much because it, it's, it pictures how God is going to do things in eternity, how God is going to wrap things up. You know, the church is under pressure, right? We're under darkness. We're oppressed even by our own sin and lostness. And he saves us through the waters of baptism that the Red Sea represents. I'm not making this up. That's just Matthew. And he leads us through the wilderness, and he will bring us home to the promised land. Right now we're in the wilderness, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But we need to remember that God has a purpose. God might take his time. He might be silent in some ways. But he's given us what we need. He hasn't been silent in the important ways. He gives us scripture to bank on that tells us how he works, how he operates, and that his purposes are to crush the dragon. He will crush the dragon. So that's what we bank on. And he closes the psalm by remembering that we can't make this about ourselves. We will never survive persecution if we make it about ourselves. Poor CFC, poor my family, poor me. Oh, poor God. His name. His name is on the line, not mine. And so he ends with this perspective that is completely Godward, starting in verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitants of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. 
Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those, uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. His heart is not for the temple because he misses the good old times of singing songs with people, just kind of in general. He doesn't just have a nostalgia about going to the temple with people. He's zealous for God's name. You're the one being disrespected here. And so verse 18, it's your name on the line. Verse 20, it's your covenant, the covenant that you made with us. It's your deal. You made this deal. You made this agreement with your people. Verse 21 again, it's your name. Verse 23, your cause. Verse 23, these are your foes. They're attacking us, but you're the one ultimately that they're attacking. This is your battle. And these people, verse 23, are rising up against you. He cares about God's name, God's agenda. And so verse 22 specifies the prayer. It's not arise God and defend me, arise God and keep us from violence, but defend your cause. Do this for you. I think as we take our individual stories and fit them into this bigger story, we see how your, our, I see how my story plays a part in this bigger one. And when I see how my story plays a part in this bigger one, I don't have to cling to treasures. I don't have to cling to comforts. I can just go, whatever is glorifying to God's name is what I cling to. And if you're in here this morning and you don't have Christ, you don't know him, all you have, and I hate to put it this crassly, but all you have is your small pitiful story that ends like this chapter ends. What is there? Who cares if the nation gets destroyed? Who cares if your career goes up or down? What is the difference if it just all ends in death and then nothingness? But if it doesn't end in death and nothingness, and there is something bigger than just our small breath of a life, then the question is, how does my small breath of a life fit in the bigger picture of life? Well, it either fits in covenant relationship with God, or you will be lumped in with the covenant haters. God offers a covenant through Christ, a new covenant that allows us to channel what happened in the Exodus, that we won't be drowned and crushed in the waters of judgment, that we'll be saved through them because we're led through the mediator, Jesus Christ. We place our faith in him, our hope in him. And then our story is given meaning by that bigger story and we can depend on God to advance his cause. Last thing I want to mention is that the psalm doesn't really end with an answer. Verse 23 is the last verse. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. And then like it ends. There's no footnote or follow-up like, and then five years later what happened was blah, blah, blah. It just leaves you like that. This, this hatred... These people are rising up continually, perpetually from verse 3, right? It just keeps happening. No answer? His answer is embedded in verses 12 through 17. God has acted before. He'll act again. Even though it's not right now, it will. Because of God's past actions and what he's taught us in Scripture, we know how things are going to end. 
Jesus wins. Jesus vindicates his people. It's until that becomes the banner of your life, uh, we won't be able to withstand persecution. In whatever form it comes, we won't be able to stand under it. Unless that's the banner. God's cause and what he wants to do in this world. And I pray that we would have courage and boldness as we read the news, listen to the podcast, hear about what's going on in this crazy world. And we would be resilient Christians who are going about God's cause, God's cause. So when we have the temptation to ask, God, why are you delaying? We can read Psalm 74 in conjunction with Psalm 2, the book of Revelation. Jesus wins, and we can pray along with John, Lord, come. Come do your thing. Come take over and show these raging nations who's king. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you.